Well, friends, feel free to grab yourself a seat. My name is Michael Hands, and I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Church. I know what you're thinking. He just took his mask off. We're on to this guy. Friends, we got some health advice, uh, and uh, there's one person allowed who's just going to lead the service or talk for a significant amount of time and said, hey, it's okay if they take their mask off. So, But I just want to say thank you so much for rocking up prepared today. I realize not everyone's comfortable wearing masks, but for those of you who are, we just wanted to make sure this is a place everyone felt safe. And thank you for complying, because this week we weren't even sure that we would be able to do this in the heart of Brisbane City. Um, And it is such an honor to be able to be here. If it's your first time here at New Life, New Life is a family of churches. We have one in Coolangatta, one on Gold Coast, and one in Brisbane now as well. And this is actually our second uh, Easter in this building. Last Easter, we were in COVID lockdown. We didn't have it. So this is year number two for Easter in Albert Street Uniting Church. I don't know about you, but wearing a mask makes me realize how difficult it is to sing whilst wearing a mask. How difficult do you think it is to lead everyone in singing whilst wearing masks? I didn't do that, but these guys did such a great job. Can we just celebrate them and everything that they did? Um, it's absolutely phenomenal. And, uh, you know, I'm here today to preach the second sense of why do we gather on a Friday that we would call good because one man died. Seems a little macabre. Seems a little bizarre. And I was listening to the radio this week, and I was listening to ABC 612. You know you're old when you have a choice of any radio station and you choose ABC 612. That's like, that's where I was at. Some of you are so young, you're going, what's a radio? That's fine. That's okay for all of us old codgers out there. And there's this sense, I'm 32 years old, it's not even, anyway. There's this sense where they, they were talking about uh, Anastasia Palaget's announcement. It was on Wednesday. I was saying about what she was going to say next Thursday. And they said this amazing line. The, the radio announcer said, I wonder if we will be free this Easter weekend. I wonder if we will be free this Easter weekend. And I thought, what an appropriate question to ask on Good Friday. Do you know the freedom? Not because lockdown has ended, but because it is finished. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, as we gather around your word today, as we pause and we stop and we celebrate and we remember that you have done it all, that you paid it all, that you have made a way for us to come home. May we pause and, and, and let the revelation of the truth of Good Friday permeate our hearts. If we're new to knowing you or we're new to church this afternoon, I pray that there would be a sense of sacred and holy awe as we remember the sacrifice of the cross. If we don't know you, I pray that a new revelation or fresh experience of your reality for us all here today, may we leave this place changed and transformed by the message of the gospel. Less of me, more of you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, does anyone here like gardening? Is anyone here like gardening? Some of you love gardening. Is anyone else out there like me who absolutely hates the idea of gardening? Some of you. See, I grew up when, uh, back, in my, back in my day, I grew up watching a show called Burke's Backyard. Anyone remember Burke's? Give me a home amongst the gum trees with lots of plum trees. With a dun, 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 dun. Anyway, that's how, the, that's how the starting song went. It was amazing. I love Burke's Backyard. I also loved Better Homes and Gardens at 7.30 on Friday night. Some of you are out there. You're like, great. Some of the young people are like, what, what's that on Netflix? What's, where's, where do I find that? Now, the issue with this is I loved watching these shows. I loved being toured around Dawn Fraser's house after she had retired as an Olympic swimmer to find out how her petunias were going. But I've sucked ever since then as a guy. 
partner. In fact, you will know that the fastest way to be disappointed in me and my wife, Sarah, is to actually give us a plant as a gift. People give us plants all the time. I don't know why. We're serial killers of plants. We rhythmically kill anything that is green in our house. If you want to buy me something, buy me a cactus. Those things don't need any looking after. I'm terrible at looking after plants. But the reason why I know this is I'm very good at knowing when something is healthy or when something's dying. I know when a plant is no longer healthy. How do you know when a plant is no longer healthy? You look at what it's producing. You look at its leaves or you look at its fruit. In fact, this is how Jesus said we might know the human condition. This is how Jesus says that we might actually be able to understand the state of the human heart. He says you will know people by their fruit. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, in Matthew chapter 7, which will be on the screen, two slides in, it says this, By their fruits you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. There is a moment in the Gospels where Jesus diagnoses the human heart. He says, you want to know how humanity is doing? Look at the fruit it is producing with its life. Such an interesting question for us to pause and ask ourselves this morning, this afternoon. What is the fruit of your life? How do you tell a tree is healthy? If I was to give you an orange from an orange tree and it was rotten, and I was to give you another orange from the same orange tree, it was rotten again. If I was to give you another orange from that same orange tree, it was rotten again. You'd start to stop questioning the oranges and start to question the source. And Jesus seems to infer that you can tell how our world is doing. You can tell how the human condition is doing, not by just uh, you know, seeing if you like someone or if they're a nice person, but by the fruit of their life. See, I think this is a pertinent, this is an interesting, this is such a beautiful understanding as a reflection on the state of our world. If our world was a tree, what would it look like? Would it look like this? A sense of dried, a sense of barren, a sense that no good fruit from come from it could come from it? Or would it look instead something lush and green, ready to be picked like this? What would our world look like if it was a tree? Friends, I think that there are some things in our world that is so good and so beautiful. But if you're anything like me, I exist in a world which sometimes has terrible fruit. Which sometimes there are things happening in the world around us that just do not seem like something you want to bite into or take part of. And the question we have to ask ourselves is what is wrong with the tree of our world? Or even more importantly, what is wrong with the tree of our hearts? So when I look at the world around me, I don't see a decline in anxiety, a decline in depression, a decline in sadness and fear and worry and violence, but a serious increase in all of these things. These things which seem to be the fruit of our generation and our society around us at all times. And we mask the fruit of our world so often. We, we try and mask with consumerism, buying new things, new clothes, new cars, getting new jobs, having new houses and new relationships, thinking that these things will cover up the reality, not just of the world out there, but also the garden in here. But you shall know a tree by its fruit. I wonder how many of us have actually experienced the fruit of the brokenness in our world. 
And we can't just gloss over the problem by making the fruit seem nicer. A rotten apple might look nice on the outside, but all it takes is one bite for us to become aware of how truly horrible and and problematic that piece of fruit is. Friends, we can't just change the appearance of the fruit. That's not dealing with the root, the cause, the heart of the issue. We must, we must address the health of the tree. But the problem with this is, is that throughout history, I don't see a time where the world has produced overwhelming healthy fruit. Sometimes we can sit back and we can think, well, the 21st century, well, it's a pretty terrible time to live with pandemics and lockdowns. But when we start to go back to 1919 and the Spanish flu, or we start to look at the violence of the 21st century, all we have to do is go back to the 20th century, the 19th century, the 18th century, and so on. We recognize that the human cycle is one of brokenness and violence where fruit has never been something that this world has done a great job at producing. And the writer of Ecclesiastes laments this. The biblical narrative, in fact, highlights the cyclical nature of the brokenness in the world around us. The writer of Ecclesiastes in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9 highlights what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun, he writes. There's almost this depressing nature to what he's saying here. There is a cyclical nature to the brokenness of the world around us. Why is this the case? You know, if you've been attending New Life with us over the last couple of weeks, you will, you will have been walking through the story of Genesis. And we know that this brokenness was not the way the world was intended to be. That in Genesis chapter 1, the God created the heavens and the earth, and He said that they were good. And there was a garden, and it was beautiful. And man and female were placed in the garden to take care of it, that they would equally flourish, and the world would flourish with them. But in that moment, we learn in Genesis chapter 3 that humanity decided instead of trusting God, chose to trust in itself, turned away from God and pursued its own and sat on the throne that is only deserved of God Himself. And we, we follow moral autonomy, moral subjectivity. We became the kings of our own worlds and desires. And so too, sin broke into the world. Now, if you're new to church today, when I say the word sin, you're like, that's, that's religious language. And I, I'm not sure if I like that kind of oppression. The best way to understand sin, friends, is to understand maybe it through the word selfishness. That the way the world was broken was we became to think about ourselves. And I I just challenge you, when you look at the brokenness of our world, is not selfishness the cause of so much? Every war was not started from selfless action, but selfish humanity. In fact, think of your own world. When was the last time you made a mistake, you did something wrong, you, you, you hurt someone you loved and you reflected, I guarantee you it wasn't because you were thinking of everybody else first. This is the selfish, broken state of our hearts, of our world. And deep down, we recognize that there is an issue when actually it's not just a world out there that is producing rotten fruit, but if we're real, there's a world in here that's doing it as well. So how do you fix a tree producing rotten fruit? Well, you don't start with the fruit. You start with the tree. And we have to recognize that if we don't, then we will be in the same cyclical nature that the ecclesiastical writer screams out, what will, has been will be again. What is done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. And the hope of Good Friday asks this question, is there a spanner we can put into the wheel of suffering and pain to rewrite a better story than the one we are currently living in? And the message of Good Friday is yes, there is. See, that's the story that we step into 
It's the answer to the cycle of selflessness in our world. We step not only into the Garden of Eden, because you see, Easter didn't begin on a hill with three crosses. It began in a garden at the dawn of time when men fell. So God started to enact his, his Easter plan that in another garden on the night that Jesus was betrayed, called a garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, we see another man step into the cycle of sin. This man named Jesus. And the night Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together and said, hey, we're going to go pray on the Mount of Olives. And we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 26, verse 37, where we find out what it meant for Jesus the night before he would go to the cross, knowing what he would experience the next day, how he acted in that moment. The Bible tells us that he took Peter and two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. What does Jesus say? My soul is overwhelmed. Friends, have you ever felt overwhelmed? Have you ever felt like the world was just too chaotic? And it might have been this week in lockdown. You might have been like, man, this is... This is just a bit much. I don't even know if I can see my family or my travel plans or vacation. Or It's just a bit overwhelming. But for some of us, we felt overwhelmed with doctor's reports. We felt overwhelmed with reality of the brokenness of our relationship. We felt overwhelmed with our study, our work. I think I want to suggest most of us in this room know what it's like to feel overwhelmed. And there's a beauty here where we see God who became man, Jesus, experiencing what it means to be overwhelmed. Sometimes we paint this picture of Jesus as if every single step of his, of his life, there was this unnatural peace about him, as if there was never any worry or concern. And here we find a different narrative that this man we call Christ, this Savior, the Son of God, was overwhelmed to the point of sorrow. Why? Because he knew what was about to happen. Because he wasn't just facing a bad moment, a bad relationship, a bad meeting, a bad result. He was facing the weight of the brokenness of sin in this world. In this moment, Jesus was preparing to carry the weight of guilt and shame. Well, what does that mean? I want you to think for, for a moment, the last time you felt guilty. Like when, 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 I'm not going to ask you to share it with anybody or tell the person next to you, but when was the last time you felt deep shame? When was the last time you felt overwhelmed by brokenness in your world? Maybe some of you walked in here like that today. Now, I want you to take that moment and multiply it by every time you've felt that way in your whole life. Then I want you to multiply that by every person that's ever felt guilty, so the whole world. Then take it again and multiply it by everyone that has or ever will exist. And the Bible tells us that at the point of Christ's crucifixion, the whole weight of that guilt and shame was on His shoulders. I don't know about you, but I hate those moments of condemnation, of not feeling good enough, of feeling like I've stuffed up. And in that moment, on the cross, Jesus bore it all in this. This is why, friends, He's overwhelmed to the point of sorrow. Because a moment that you and I would seek to escape, He is choosing to willingly step into for our sake. In fact, the Bible goes on and tells us in another gospel, it says that Jesus was so overwhelmed to the point of sorrow that he sweated like drops of blood. 
There's actually a medical condition that has been found that if someone has experienced increased anxiety or worry or trauma in a moment, if their body is overwhelmed with panic, that their pores can open and they, they can actually sweat blood. It's not a miraculous thing. It's something that has been documented to have happened at other moments in history. And that's how traumatic this moment was for Christ. This, is, this seems like a terrible story, but it's also good news for some of you today have come in with weights and you wonder, does anybody know what it's like to carry a weight that is unbearable? Our Savior does. Our Savior does. And it's this beautiful moment where he says to his disciples, will you watch with me? But the thing that I take away from this is, do I accurately know the weight of my selfishness? Do I know the depth and reality of the brokenness that just, just me and you, just that we have brought into this world? Because Christ faces it on our behalf. And the reality is that the Bible says this sin is, is, has a wage. It's something that's earned. In Romans 6 verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death. Now, we look at this and we're like, wow, that's, that's, that's pretty hectic. The wages of sin is death? That's not very happy. What does that mean? You see, back in Genesis, in the, in the beginning of all time, God created us to be connected to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. He wanted us to flourish. But what we do is that we turn around and said, I don't want anything to do with God. And this is what sin and selfishness does. It separates us from God and leads us into our own kingdom, our own autonomy. If you get cut off, if you take a branch from an orange tree and leave it by itself, it's been disconnected from its source. You don't have to be a good gardener to know what's going to happen to the branch. It withers, it dies, because it's been cut off from the source of life. And that's what happens when we turn away from God, friends. We get cut off from the source of life, which leads our souls to wither and to die. This is why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. What it earns by cutting ourselves off from life is not more life. It's not freedom. It's a different type of imprisonment altogether. So how does Jesus respond to this weight? He turns and he calls out to God. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, we see the depth of his cry. Going a little further on, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and he prays this prayer. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. This is a bizarre prayer for the Son of God to pray in any moment. God, God if it's possible... I know what's about to happen tomorrow. If there is any other way. Now, now hear this. Jesus is not saying, God, I don't want to save people. He's saying if there is any other possible way to, for people to find salvation, let's take that path. But it's also saying, but not my will, but yours be done. There's a relational, mysteri mysterious dynamic there with the Trinity. But why is he talking about a possibility? He's actually referring to the idea that the whole Old Testament, which some of us are in the middle of reading through right now, points to the fact that every other possible way had already been used up. Throughout the Old Testament, God doesn't just suddenly send Jesus Christ, His Son. He continually gives men and women other opportunities, other chances, sacrificial systems. He gives them laws that man might earn their way back to being connected to the, to the tree of life. He sends prophets. He sends kings. He continues giving humanity a chance, every possible way to find their way home. And not only the whole Old Testament, but friends, doesn't all of human history attest to the fact no matter how long you leave humanity, we don't seem to find our way back to life and life in all of its fullness. If there's any other possible way, and the reality is, friends, that the weight and price of our sin could only be met by someone paying the price of death, 
Because the wages of sin is death. And so who pays the price? And in this moment, Jesus says, but if it's the only way that they might be saved, then not my will, but yours be done. And he returns to his disciples. And in a moment, he sees that they have fallen asleep in Matthew chapter 26, verse 40. And he says, then he returned as his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you, you men watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. He then goes on, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus returns to his disciples who, friends, are acting like you and I often do. They are asleep to the state, not just of the world, but their own morality. How many of us uh, are asleep to the brokenness in the world around us? Let me ask you a different question. How many of us are asleep to the brokenness in our own souls? How often is the problem out there but never in here. And Christ says, be careful. And maybe today he's saying it's time to wake up to realize that this sense of sleep doesn't take away reality, that the tree is rotten and it's producing bad fruit. And there is a problem. And I've come to provide and to give an answer. See, the truth is, friends, is that sin, selfishness, is not something that we can fall asleep to as humanity because it doesn't just affect how you relate to each other. It affects our eternity. It's so clear in the Bible that what sin does is it separates us from the tree of life. But this isn't just a thing for this reality. It's a thing of eternal truth. Then in eternity, we have the choice to either be connected and to follow God or to be separated from Him. And the beauty is, is that it's our choice. C.S. Lewis, a great theologian, says that in the last day, there will be two kinds of people. The first kind of person is the person who turns to God and before his throne says, Thy will be done. And the other is the person who God turns towards and says, Thy will be done. Depart from me, I never knew you. And we all have a choice. That's what Easter is. It's God having done everything to make a way home but asking if we will follow him there. So he returns again. He returns again to pray. In Matthew chapter 26, verse, uh, verse 40, he goes on and says, Jesus went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away from me unless I drink it, may your will be done, Jesus Christ. May your will be done. In this moment, we see such a beautiful juxtaposition of Christ. We see that He steps in and says something that has not really been said before by anyone in humanity because the last time humanity had a choice to follow the will of God, it was in another garden called Eden. And it was with a man or woman named Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve didn't turn to God and say, Your will be done, God. No, Adam and Eve said this, Not your will, God, but my will be done. And if, if, we're, if we're real tonight, if we're real this Easter, Every single one of us in this room at some stage have turned to God and said, you know what, I want to live my own way because I have a better understanding of morality. I know what's right and what's wrong. Stuff this religious stuff. I'm doing my own thing. And the question I would ask is, how's that worked out for you? How's that worked out for the world? 
Adam says, my will be done and the world becomes broken. We've been fighting our way back ever since. But Jesus, in a beautiful juxtaposition, finds himself not in the Garden of Eden, but in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prays a different prayer. He says, as the second Adam, the true Adam, the better gardener and the better man, he turns to God and says, not my will be done, but your will be done. This is the beauty of the heart of Christ, the obedience of Christ. That He says, even though tomorrow my body will be torn, my wrists will be pierced with nails, I will wear a crown of thorns and mocked and scorned and deserted, I will go to the cross. Why? The book of Hebrews says to us that Jesus endures the shame of the cross for the joy that was before Him. What was the joy that was before Him? That redemption and life and salvation that you might know that your last day is not your worst day. This is the joy that was set before Jesus. And that's why He endured the cross and cries out, not my will be done, Father, but your will be done. That's why in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, we see His beautiful understanding of the narrative from one garden to the next. For by one man's sin, Adam, disobedience, in the garden of Eden, many were made sinners. So also by one man's, Jesus' obedience, many will be made righteous. Some of us might sit here and be like, it's not really fair that Adam screwed it up for the rest of us. Friends, if you can't accept that by one man's disobedience, the world and creation was broken, then you also can't accept that by one man's obedience, you get salvation, eternal life and grace and goodness. You can't have either, you can't have one without the other. You can't get the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ without accepting that, hey, one man broke it for all of us and one man in Jesus' name has made it right again. This is the humility, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the reality of what it means. Because you see, when we say, for the wages of sin is death, it's only half of the truth. Romans 6 verse 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. But the writer of the biblical narrative goes on and says, but the gift of God is eternal life. Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, we sometimes can think in Christianity that the Christian and religious voice has come to condemn us. And friends, the truth of the gospel is God wants to provide us a way out of condemnation. And maybe you've come into church today to this Easter service and you know what it means to be condemned. To be condemned is when someone or your own heart looks at you and says, this moment, your worst moment, your identity, this is who you are. You're no better than your biggest mistake. That's condemnation. But the power of the Holy Spirit comes in and says, this is not who you are, brings in conviction. God created you for more than this. Come and know life and life to all its fullness. Friends, we're not here to condemn anyone today. By the power of Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit, we're bringing to bring conviction of sin, but also the good news of life, that you are not your worst mistake. Christ has called you to more, to be a son and daughter of God. This is the price. This is why Jesus came. Why? That you might know He lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we should have died. And this Friday is called good, not because He didn't die, but because His death finished something we couldn't. The power of sin. And we get to have that truth in our life if you so would choose today. Do you know? Do you know the garden? Do you know the truth? So how do we get back? Do we just sit in a church service? No, the Bible is so clear. The way home, the way to respond to the sacrifice of Jesus is to repent and believe. Repent is a relational term. It literally means to recognize that the one you love is leading you in a different direction, to turn around and say, I'm sorry for walking the wrong direction, and now I follow you. And to believe that He is Lord. 
And maybe you're sitting there and going, why would, why would Jesus do this? Because the greatest verse in the Bible, John 3.16 reminds us, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son so that Mary, so that Calvin, so that Katie, so that Jim, so that, so that every single person in this room might know that if you believe in Him, you shall not perish but have eternal life. You were the reason for the cross. Creation's brokenness was the reason for Christ's salvation. Friends, what is the fruit of your life? There is a good gardener who comes to make us back grafted to a tree. I don't know if you can take a branch and graft it back to a tree. Some gardener in the room can come tell me if that's possible. But it's possible with the human heart. God comes to graft us back into the true vine that we might produce good fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, meekness, humility. These are the fruits of those who follow Christ, the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Friends, do you know the fruit of God today? And is it time to come home? Would you pray with me? Gracious God. Gracious God, we love you so much, but some of us, God, we do not yet know how much you love us. The truth is, is that at the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus drank the cup of your wrath of the only answer to sin, which is the punishment of death. He drank it on our behalf that we might have life. And God, help us to wrestle with this today, that this is good news for us, that we don't need to worry anymore about our sin as long as we throw it upon the cross of Jesus. We can repent, turn, and believe, God, this is so good news. That the Christian faith doesn't say do, it says that Jesus has done. And Lord, I know right now you're wanting us to be people who produce fruit that this world so desperately needs. So friends, if you're in this room right now with your head bowed and eyes closed and you're sitting there, you're going, I need to produce better fruit with my life. I just want to ask if you would do this. If you want to turn, repent and believe in Jesus, then the only answer would be to actually right now in this moment choose to accept His invitation on this Friday that we call good. And if that's you, you want to respond and be reattached to the tree of life, not the tree of this world, that the fruit of your life might bless this world. I wonder if you would just open your hands on your lap right now, wherever you are. I want to just teach you a prayer that's not magical, but it's spiritual in nature. It just, it just leads us through what it means to respond to the prompting of God's conviction. And if you want to respond, you can just repeat these words after me out loud or in your heart. You can say these words, Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for the fruit of my life. I repent of my sin. Thank you for drinking the cup that I could not drink and dying a death that I should have died. Lead me into life and life in all of its fullness. Teach me to follow you as my Lord, my Savior, and my friend. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, if you prayed that prayer for the first time today, that's exactly why this Friday is called good. That we might know life and life eternal and life in all of its fullness. And in a moment, we're going to take this meal together of communion. If you want to prepare your cups, don't rip them yet. We'll do that together in a moment. But in response to this sermon, what we just want to do is we want to sit 
And Aaron and the team is going to play an item over us. Alex is going to sing an item over us. It's called communion. And this is a song which says, you know where you're meant to be is not far from God, but right close to Him as His friend. That those who are now called sons and daughters of God, Jesus also now calls friend. And this is a truth that we get to celebrate this Easter. So let this song wash over you as we reflect on the meaning of the cross together.